This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to The Francis Effect for the second week of September 2017. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. And I'm here with Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and is an assistant professor of systematic theology at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Hello, Dan. What's up, David? Good to be with you. Good to be here with you. Every couple of weeks we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. On today's episode, we're looking at a couple of topics that have caught our attention over the last couple of weeks. The first one we want to look at is Catholic social teaching and Confederate monuments. And after that, we're going to sort of dive into a vexing question, what is up with Paul Ryan? And not just (laughs) Paul Ryan, but a whole slew of Catholic politicians in America today. And finally, we're going to look at Katrina, Harvey, and the continuing problem of care for creation. Before we get started, we just want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis and an F and an X and the word pod. And if you want to ask us a question or a comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. So uh, before we begin, um, I don't know how to ask this, but you've had a hard week. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing better. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, some family uh, health issues this past week. It was nice to be with them. Uh, the good news, the long story short, is that everybody is well and uh, recovering. A uh, family member, my mother, actually had surgery. And so, uh, yeah, thanks for bringing up the painful thing, David. I'm sorry about that. But no. I, I've been praying for your mother. I've been <laughs> you praying have. for your family. I'll continue to, to do that. But you've also had uh, some fellow Franciscan brothers sort of come into the fold over the past few weeks. Is that right? Yeah, in the most formal way possible or the finalized way. Uh, yeah, so it's been it's been a whirlwind. So, yeah, mixed, mixed blessings and graces and st- struggles and challenges. So what you're referring to, I think, is uh, what we call solemn profession. So... After a few years of uh, simple vows, we call it, or temporary profession, uh, Franciscan friars make a final commitment. Uh, it's the same vows, poverty, chastity, and obedience, but instead of making it for one year at a time, they say, for the entirety of our lives. Bum, bum, bum. So you're telling me that Franciscan friars for the first few years just do this thing on the installment plan. They're like year to year. Basically, yeah. It's, it's kind of like a trial. You know, it's sort of like those people who sign up for Netflix for 30 days or, you know, HBO Go for 30 days and then cancel after the trial. That, that could happen. Or you can renew for another year or more. Or for the entirety of your life. It'd be interesting if Netflix had that option. <laughs> it so, does not. So it would also be interesting if Netflix had robes that went with it. I mean, think about that. So <laughs> you, true. It used to be the little red envelopes, and now it's a habit. <laughs> um, but so when, when they make these solemn vows, when they make these professions, um, it, it looked to me on Facebook like all the brothers gathered from hither and yon and sort of cheered them on. Is that a fair way of, a, of 
characterizing it? It is. In many ways, um, you know, we really actually only celebrate what's called first profession. So that first set of vows where people renew for a year at a time. Uh, the, the solemn vows is really the last time one professes their vows because they do it for uh, the rest of their lives. And uh, that's oftentimes seen as analogous to like, uh, like a Christian wedding. And so the community gathers together. You invite your family, your friends. Uh, and it's indeed uh, true that a lot of the friars come. And so uh, not everybody's able to make it for lots of reasons, but, you know, a serious uh, percentage of the, of the community is there. And there's this great part of, of the liturgy itself after the friars who are making solemn vows profess their vows uh, and receive a blessing. And we pray for, uh, you know, the intercession of the communion of saints then all of the, the friars present who are solemnly professed go up and embrace the friars. So it's a sign of peace. It's kind of like a welcoming and a celebration. So it's, it's really, a, it's a wonderful time. And, and does this always happen in the same place or does it, does for your, for your province, does it happen all over the province? For us? Um, so I'm from, as, as you mentioned in the intro from the New York province. And so uh, for us, it has historically taken place at what we call like our mother church in midtown Manhattan, St. Francis of Assisi church on 31st street. Um, but each province uh, around the world will make that kind of decision. It doesn't have to be in any particular place. Um, you just need the minister provincial and uh, a certain number of the friars there for the support and celebration. Well, let's move into our first topic and uh, sort of looking at Catholic social teaching and Confederate monuments. So our listeners will understand that over the last few weeks, uh, this has been a really uh, a, really a point of, of sort of a flashpoint for the country particularly in uh, Charlottesville and in other areas. I, I know that there was a demonstration in Memphis that, uh, and some other areas as well. Um, these monuments that were put up rather hastily around the time of Jim Crow when new civil rights uh, legislation was being put in place to sort of help to protect citizens, communities would put up these quick monuments that were sort of cheaply made, but they've now they've sort of gained a historical significance over time. Did you grow up in New York or... or? So I am a uh, military brat. I was born in uh, actually the Gulf of Mexico area. I was born in Pensacola, Florida. My father was a Marine Corps officer, so I lived in North Carolina, South Carolina, Connecticut, and then eventually my parents, uh, after my father left active uh, service, uh, returned to where they were both from in upstate New York. So I spent most of my childhood and, and certainly high school years in, in central New York. Well, I'm a military kid too, and I spent a lot of time in the South, kind of in different places like you did. And so it sounds like we both kind of have a, a similar perspective on this, and that would be we, we've, we've been exposed to Southern communities, but we also kind of make our homes in non-Southern communities. So what has this looked like to you over the last few weeks? Well, you know, I think I'm, I'm like a lot of our listeners. I imagine a lot of the, the folks uh, around the United States uh, and, and perhaps elsewhere because there's been a, quite a bit of international observation and comment as well. Uh, it's, it's been deeply troubling to me, to be quite honest. Um, I think one of the things as, uh, as, a, as a friar, as a Catholic priest, as a theologian, um, I mean, really just as, as a human being, uh, it's, it's been uh, troubling to me. And one of the things that keeps coming to mind is, well, what do we as a Christian community, what does our faith have to do with this? Because we can't uh, lose sight of the fact that the institution of chattel slavery here in the United States, or what became the United States, it was oftentimes uh, justified or, or kind of reinscribed. It was supported by a distorted understanding of Christianity or of sacred scripture. And so uh, we can't pretend that Christians uh, can kind of exonerate themselves and say that the issues around white supremacy, uh, racism, uh, the role of history and memory. These are all theological themes. These are all themes that are related to the faith. And so I, on the one hand, I've been somewhat 
supported or uplifted by what I've seen as some serious kind of consideration and response, particularly from faith communities and, and people who identify as, as religious practitioners of one sort or another. On the other hand, I've also been disturbed by those who really want to compartmentalize themselves and say, well, this, this is a politicized issue or this is politics or partisanship. I don't think it's quite as simple as that. And so when we think about, and you mentioned sacred scripture, so I, I remember the the distortion of things like descendants of Ham, accursed of God, and those kind of scriptures that were twisted to justify owning other human beings. But this is the 21st century. Why are we still kind of having these conversations? And that's, I mean, there, it seems like there's something really deep that is in not just the Southern psyche, but in in just the American psyche that really makes us want to keep coming back to this crazy, and I'll call it crazy, this, this almost mental illness of Hey, what happened in eight in the eighteen sixties was basically okay, and uh, and this was a this was a noble cause, and we want to lift up these generals that were basically seditious and that were traitors to the country. And to me, it uh, it seems like we shouldn't still be having this conversation, and yet here we are. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a fair question. Um, it's a question that has an uncomfortable answer. I think a two pronged answer. One is. Why are we still having this conversation? I think one thing that needs to be addressed, and, and we probably won't have time in this episode to talk about it, it's something we might come back to, which is the institution of slavery, though not legal in the sense that it's a founding economic and civil principle of the United States as it was in the 19th century and, and previous, um, still exists today. We think about human trafficking. We think about um, all the sorts of ways in which, uh, particularly with, with immigration and the more that there's rhetoric against paths to citizenships and legal ways for people to come in and and way we care for our sisters and brothers who have various documented status. You know, people become victimized by 21st century slavery. So one thing is that's that's still a real issue today. The second thing is, um, and I think you alluded to this as you're you're just speaking now, David, that we have not addressed our history. The United States collectively, those uh, folks who identify either by, particularly if they're born into this country, and if you identify or present as white like you and I both do, we happen to be two white men, it's very unlikely that people have taken the time to consider and to engage with and to really kind of interrogate our history. And we certainly haven't done it collectively. And so there's this kind of unaddressed, as, as you kind of brought up an analogy of almost like a mental illness, in a sense it is, it's a specter that haunts our reality. And until we name it, until we address it, like our sisters and brothers in South Africa worked very hard and painfully to do with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, after the ending of apartheid in the 90s, uh, like our sisters and brothers north of us in Canada are doing right now with the treatment of First Nations people and, and the fact that they've just begun a reconciliation process. We have never done anything like that on any kind of scale apart from maybe piecemeal kind of solutions. And, and what that says to me is that, and why this is such a problem in the 21st century, is that racism for most Americans is understood as a particular act, a malicious act or a discrete instance of harm or meanness directed toward another, a racial slur, so we use our language, or a prejudice in terms of a judgment, or uh, an overt act like the burning of a cross or the, uh, the, the lynching of a human person, right? These sorts of things are uh, what most people think of when they think of racism, and what they don't think about is the deeply embedded structures and institutions and systems that are so perverted and racist in our country. And, and it's fair to say, and I, I have no qualms about saying that the United States is a racist country. Um, and de facto, we are by virtue of being a part of it. And, and I just want to make that distinction um, as 
people like Father Brian Massengale, a Catholic ethicist and a theologian who wrote a great book called um, Racial Justice in the Catholic Church. Uh, he and so many other people have pointed out we need to consciously make a decision, particularly as people of faith, between racist acts in, in kind of an individual sense or an overt sense and in a culture of racism or institutional racism, structural racism, uh, systemic racism in which we're all implicated. And, and one line that comes to mind uh, to be you know, kind of very interfaith about this is a line that's attributed to Rabbi Abraham Heschel uh, when he said that, you know, we may not all be guilty, but we're all responsible. And I think uh, we shouldn't lose sight of that. Well, one of the things that often comes up when we hear people talking about these sorts of things is a, a kind of a rights language. So like, it's my First Amendment right to believe what I want to believe and say what I want to say. It's my First Amendment right to assemble with who I want to assemble with. And so if I want to march with Nazis, I'm going to go and march with Nazis. One of the things that uh, in preparing for this, I really started to think about was when we talk about Catholic social teaching, we're not talking about something that's based in rights language. We're talking instead about something that's based in the language of dignity. Yes. And that really shifts the conversation. And I'm just, I'm, you know, I don't know enough about Catholic social teaching to, to be able to really kind of to, to expand on that other than to say that as I am studying, you know, Catholic social teaching, it seems to me that that, that shift is very important, that we're not thinking about what's, what my right is, but rather how am I, how am I um, bringing the dignity of the other person into the conversation? Yeah, that's 100% correct. Um, and I think that's something very confusing for particularly Americans and Western Europeans like, uh, like the British on whose legal system, our legal system is modeled, that we operate with. Uh, a notion of, as you said, rights that are kind of agreed upon in a social contract or some other form. Catholic teaching makes it very clear that not only are these rights that are inalienable, like we see in our Constitution, but rather there's dignity and value that's a priori, that's inherent, that's that's intrinsic, and, and that can never be removed. You can't take that away. You can't, no matter what you do, reject that or, or you know, deny that of another. And so the rights language is external, right? I have a right to do X, Y, or Z. Well, those can be modified. Those can be altered, right? You do not have the right in the United States of America to incite violence. Or right? to shout fire in a crowded theater. Exactly. To bring harm to another. You have no right to, uh, to do that. And that's, you know, important to keep in mind. Whereas, you know, you're right. We, we need to think in terms of the, the inherent dignity of the human person. I would expand and we'll talk more about that later with care for creation, that, that dignity language in, in Catholic social ethics is, is more expansive than that. But I think, you know, this business about rights of association, rights of free speech, uh, based on, on the U.S. Constitution, I think, you know, I can't contest that. I don't think you are either. Neither of us would. The interesting thing about that, though, is that, you know, Catholic social teaching, you know, Catholic ethics more broadly, oftentimes raises this very important question, just because one has the legal right to do something, ought one to do it, or mm -hmm. ought we do it? So, you know, one has the right to associate, and, and I'm actually not interested in pursuing that question. I just think it's one we should raise. I think the more important question is to interrogate as people of faith, what are we really doing, or what do people who claim to be preserving history, for instance, which is the kind of the go-to, like to take down these monuments uh, to Confederate generals and, and monuments of, of the Civil War uh, from the perspective of the Confederacy, is to somehow erase history or something like that. And I think it's important, and, I, and here I'm going to do a shout out to uh, Paul Moses, who is a, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist uh, who now is a professor of journalism uh, in, in New York City, uh, has written several books that are very good. But he wrote an article recently in Commonweal Magazine, 
And in it, he's really engaging this question of the popular rhetoric around history and culture. And we see that even in the president's tweets and in his statements, his defense of the marching of the Nazis. And in effect, beyond a tacit approval of what they're saying, he, he refused to denounce their ideology and their beliefs. And on the grounds that these monuments are sort of an objective, quote unquote, sort of recollection or memorializing of history. And one of the things that Paul Moses does so well is he goes back to, as you rightly pointed out at the beginning of the segment, you know, what is the origin of these monuments? Where did they come from? They didn't arise in 19 or 1865. They came at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, and they were largely funded by uh, this movement called the United Daughters of the Confederacy. There were these women who wanted to, quote unquote, preserve their Southern heritage, as it were. And uh, what Moses does is go back to a book by the historian Karen Cox. Her book is titled Dixie's Daughters, The United Daughters of the Confederacy and the Preservation of Southern Culture. And what in that book, what uh, Cox points out is that what they meant by Southern culture was this so-called lost cause movement that aimed to preserve a Confederate culture that kind of emphasized white supremacy and states' rights. These are not inseparable. So they didn't like to use the word nation. They didn't like to use the word country. They wanted to talk about a republic of states. These are individual states to kind of localize uh, certain kinds of practices, including slavery or discrimination or segregation and the rest. And back to the 1890s, uh, the leader of this women's association, which did, also did, we should acknowledge, you know, also did charitable works, but they were the kind of leading force behind these monuments at the turn of the 20th century. Adelia Dunavant was the chairwoman of this group. And when asked why they should build these Confederate uh, statues, these statues to these so-called heroes for them, she gave uh, a very direct answer. And I, I just want to quote a little bit of that um, because it undermines essentially this argument that the reason these statues and monuments were erected was for history. She said at a convention in 1898, and I quote, our association is, is properly not one of historic memories, but of vital present interest, not only one of sentiment, but of utility. History should be made to serve its true purpose by bringing its lessons into the present and using them as a guide to the future. And a little later on in the same speech, she says, what lies before us is not only loyalty to memories, but loyalty to principles, not only the building of monuments, not only the vindication of the men of the Confederacy, for great and worthy as are these objects, there is that which is of even greater importance, the vindication and principles which those heroes and those monuments represent. That's devastating. That's, I mean, that basically is, is, the, is the slam dunk right there that says, hey, we're not really looking at history at all. We're just looking at the, at the way that we can use history to push our agenda in the present. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and that's and that's why I, I thought that quote was so insightful, because, you know, the claim that what we're doing by calling for the removal of these monuments or of these statues is somehow an erasure of, of historical memory is completely bunk. It's completely bogus because the people who built these monuments, what they intended for it, as we hear in the chairwoman's uh, speech, is essentially a reminder of that we need to preserve these racist uh, supremacist, segregationist values in the present. They should, they're kind of a call to arms of discrimination, and that Catholics cannot in any way support that. But historically, Catholics sometimes did. Yeah, that's right. There are a lot of things that we did that were terrible. <laughs> but, but I think that's a fair point to raise because that's another kind of bogus response. You know, people will say, well, 
you know, Catholicism used to justify slavery, which is a fact, uh, you know, several hundred years ago. But let's bring us back to 20, uh, 2017. If we look at Catholic social teaching, the official magisterial teaching of the church, including the Second Vatican Council, Gaudium et Spes, John Paul II's Veritas, Veritatis Splendor, the USCCB's documents on racism and racial justice, um, it's, it's very clear that we have acknowledged the ways in which we as, as a church, as a faith community, have been wrong. And, and there have been minority voices along the way. I think of like Bartolome de las Casas um, in, the, in the 16th and late, early 17th centuries, who was very much against the kind of establishment theological perspective that was rooted in an Aristotelian view that some human beings were, quote unquote, natural slaves and that this was perfectly normal. We do not believe that anymore. Uh, just like, you know, we don't believe in a, a non-heliocentric vision of our solar system, you know. Uh, Galileo won that one. <laughs> Newsflash. So there's a lot more to say about all this, but this might be a good uh, time to just take a break and reset. And when we come back, we'll, we'll dive into our next topic. Hello, this is David, uh, outside the podcast realm for the moment, just talking to you in advertising land. If you're enjoying the conversation that we're having, I want to make sure that you're aware that I do another show as well called Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. That's a weekly show that's been on since 2011, and we've talked to some amazing guests. It's basically a long-form interview where we get a chance to talk about how faith animates a person's life. We talk to authors and politicians and tastemakers and musicians, any kinds of folks that have some sort of faith component to their lives. So I'd love it if you get if you gave that a chance, too, and gave that a listen. That's at thingsnotseenradio.com. That's thingsnotseenradio.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So this is The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalton. I'm here with Dan Haran. And every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about current events from a Catholic perspective. We just got done sort of diving in a little bit to Catholic social teaching and Confederate monuments. And now I just want to ask the question that I've been trying to ask forever, and that is, what is up with Paul Ryan? <laughs> I mean, and I asked that question kind of facetiously, but it really touches base to not just Paul Ryan, but Nancy Pelosi and any number of other politicians who claim to be Catholic, who say that they identify with the Catholic faith, and yet they can, from either end of the political spectrum, they can really grab into uh, just a, a really kind of set of terrible places. Nancy Pelosi supports policies that I don't agree with. Paul Ryan certainly supports policies that I don't agree with. And I I wonder kind of what it is that that allows or how it is that these people navigate their Catholicism. Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. Uh, it's one that I don't have obviously uh, an expert answer to. I I do have plenty of expert and non-expert opinions. <laughs> I'm sure you do too. Yeah. Um, but I think you know you're framing this exactly right, which is it in a sense it doesn't matter which political party within the United States context you align with. There is no Roman Catholic political party in the United States. Right. So it does. It really. I don't want to say it doesn't matter that they're all equal. It doesn't matter in terms of a purity or some sort of pure standard or test. So, unfortunately, for the last thirty years or so, there's been this kind of uh, hoodwinking of a lot of Catholics in the pew, as well as the hoodwinking of national media and international media 
that the Catholic Church, at least as it understands itself in its leadership in the United States, supports the Republican Party, which is, I think, partly the the, the question, what's up with Paul Ryan? And it was a question that just a few weeks ago, back in August, at a CNN town hall that a Dominican sister from Cincinnati, Wisconsin, asked Paul Ryan himself, uh, Sister Erica Jordan, who's a retired teacher and somebody who has worked for a long time, a Dominican sister, asked Speaker Ryan exactly the question. She didn't phrase it as, what's up with you? Uh, but she, she said, you know, Speaker Ryan, I understand you're a Catholic and I am too. How do you understand your, your support of or lack of support in this case for the poor and the marginalized, the dispossessed for whom God shows preferential option? And this is Catholic teaching. And she says, how do you understand the incorporation or the support of Catholic teaching in your policies, in your, in your exercise of the office? And, you know, he gave an answer that I think is, is <laughs> what politicians call the pivot, which is it's a pseudo answer in, in that. He, he talked about economic policies and basically justified a libertarian yeah. sort of uh, economic view, which, again, not to nitpick here, but Catholic teaching is very clear that the purpose of politics and the purpose of government is always the maintenance and protection of the common good. Not just politics. It's it's the econ- it's everything. Oh, yeah. the, the economy is there to serve the common good as well. And, and so when we have uh, Paul Ryan pivoting to a, an economic answer, the kind of rising tide lifts all boats, we've got kind of two problems there. One, he, you know, it's that classic thing of if you don't like the question, uh, change the conversation, which is what he does. And he changes the conversation to economics, but economics actually doesn't give him an out because if he's actually living according to Catholic creeds and social teachings, then the economic factors should be there to give him should be there to lift everybody up and should be there for the common good. Yeah, that's right. And that's where, you know, theological ethicists like Ken Himes at Boston College or uh, Dan Finn uh, down at St. John's in Collegeville or Kate Ward at Marquette University, you know, these these theologians are, you know, deal with the deep and difficult economic realities and, and, and theories as well as Catholic social teaching in the history of, of Catholic ethics to point out exactly that point, which is, you know, his answer to pivot to kind of libertarian sort of economic strategy of minimal government and no social net for those who are the most dispossessed, the most historically dispossessed also, doesn't take into account either those structural issues like we talked about earlier with racism as one example or, you know, misogyny or patriarchy, the fact that women still to this day in the United States make depending on the other demographics that, that affect them, as as much as 80% on the dollar or as little as, you know, 50 cents, 62 cents on the dollar. I, I think, yeah, that's really important. That in other words, the issue for him, if he wants to live a kind of, you know, a Catholic teaching supported economic plan, then he's got to change his economic plan. Well, do you think that, that Ryan would have answered any differently if there had been a, a bishop asking the question? And would a bishop have asked that question? Depends on the bishop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, that's one of the great things about the uh, great things and sometimes frustrating things. People think that the Roman Catholic Church's institutional structure, hierarchical structure is top down, that the pope is the, the pope in chief and, and orders all these kind of generals that are the, the bishops. But we, we really exercise the principle of subsidiarity. So at the local level, each particular church, so the Church of Chicago, the Church of Milwaukee, the Church of Syracuse, New York, um, is overseen by a, a bishop who is the local ordinary and shepherd. 
So for as many bishops as there are, there are, you know, different personalities, different educational backgrounds, different competencies when it comes to what they know. Just because you're ordained a bishop doesn't mean all of a sudden you're a professor of theology or of ethics. I know that's surprising to people, though at the same time, it's important to remember that it's the responsibility of the local bishop to be the primary teacher and pastoral leader. So, you know, they need to surround themselves with with good theologians and uh, ethicists and the like. So back to your question, if a bishop had asked the question, I don't know. If, uh, first of all, it depends on what the which bishop it was. Maybe there are bishops who have accommodated in their own mind or their own practices kind of economic policy that, in fact, does not reflect what Pope Benedict XVI Pope, uh, this always gets confusing as a mouthful. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI has talked about in things like Deus Caritas Est or John Paul II in his social encyclicals or Leo XIII and Rerum Novarum more than 100 years ago or Pope Francis in our own day. I think the issue is really when we look at the history of magisterial teaching, the emphasis on common good and the dignity of the individual laborer and the right to work and stuff is, uh, is held up. And the claims that uh, Speaker Ryan uh, proposes as a way of living out his faith, it's not really justifiable. Well, when when you kind of read the comments sections in, you know, places like uh, National Catholic Reporter or America Magazine or whatever, you inevitably, or, or in more conservative publications as well, you inevitably have people coming down and saying, well, why is it that they don't just bar them from taking communion? And in the case of Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden or politicians who are are willing to support abortion, why don't they get disbarred from communion? For those that are from coming from a more kind of left version of Catholic faith, they might say to Paul Ryan or think about Paul Ryan, why doesn't he get barred from communion for the same reasons? And you're not a canon lawyer, I'm not a canon lawyer, but for those that, that, that ask that question, why is it that we can't bar them from communion? It's much more difficult to bar someone. From, I mean, you're a priest. It's much more difficult to bar someone from communion than simply saying, uh-uh, you're not, you're not part of this. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not a canon lawyer, but I play one on TV, and I, I know something about it. Uh, and so I think it's worth talking about. I'm glad you brought that up because people will appeal to one particular canon, canon 915, which we'll come back to in just a moment, and I'll explain what that's about and, and, and how it's been interpreted and how it's been largely misinterpreted. But back to the, the question about, you know, barring people or, or prohibiting people from receiving communion or put more broadly, receiving the sacraments is, first and foremost, you can't just do that because the Eucharist is not a weapon. And I think that's one thing that people lose sight of. It's not, see, this is the, as you mentioned earlier in, in, in our conversation, Catholic teaching Catholic theology, Catholic ethics is not rights-based in this sense. To receive Holy Eucharist, to partake in, in communion, to, to have access to the sacraments is not a right that gets taken away. Like if you're a felon, you lose the right to vote in certain states. You never lose the right to the sacraments. Except, and this is, this is what you were alluding to a moment ago, there are some conditions. The most common one is what's called excommunication, which itself is also not a weapon. Uh, excommunication by definition means that you are outside of communion with the rest of the body of Christ, which means that you have, by some action, by some decision, by some activity, made a move, made a kind of deliberative decision to move yourself outside of communion with the rest of the church, which means then you, you then don't have access to the sacraments. One example of that is apostasy. This was a big issue, certainly much more of an issue 1,600, 15, you know, 1,800 years ago than it is in, tw in, in the 21st century, but it can be an issue today when we think of 
the, the, the tragedies of terrorism and ISIS, for instance, people who renounce their Christianity, we can bracket for a moment doing that under duress and, and these sorts of things, but somebody who says, I don't believe in the creed, I reject the Trinity, I don't believe in the sacraments, I don't believe in grace and so forth, and, and they reject it. Well, you de facto, the, the meaning of excommunication is you have removed yourself from communion with the church and therefore outside of receiving the sacraments, right? So that's one thing. Excommunication, though, and people think of it as a weapon because it is the role of the local ordinary to acknowledge that in a formal way. So one does something like commits apostasy, right, or is a schismatic. They break away from the church and start their own group, like a lot of these so-called sede vacantists, these people who don't believe that uh, since the Second Vatican Council we have a, a real successor to St. Peter, a real pope and so forth. Like Society of St. Pius X and Ex folks like that. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And there are so many more. I mean, there are all these independent groups. Uh, that's I, I, one of my classmates in the Friars. When we were postulants, which is uh, before you're a novice, the very first year of formation, he was obsessed with these guys. And part of it is because he came from an MA program at a Catholic university where he was a TA for a, for a faculty member who was doing research on these uh, kind of schismatic groups. And he would show me some of these websites. They're, they're kind of hilarious. And they're also sad at the same time. You know, people who, who reject Vatican II, who reject the legitimacy of the popes of the last 50 years and so forth. In any event, if, if one does something to excommunicate themselves and that's formally recognized, then you are outside the communion with the church and therefore don't have access as access to the sacraments. Another thing that gets used is it's called interdiction, which is that's a punishment to be interdicted. That sounds, people should throw that around. That's much more scary than excommunication, isn't it? To be interdicted. That would be, without getting into all the nuts and bolts, that's more akin to a, a, a sentence or a punishment or something like that. Now, neither of those things usually are what's at stake when we talk about politicians in the U.S. You know, it wasn't what's at stake in 2004 with John Kerry or with Joe Biden or, or Nancy Pelosi or Paul Ryan, right? What usually comes up is what Canon 915 says. So 915 says, those who have been excommunicated or interdicted after the imposition or declaration of the penalty, notice declaration of the penalty, you can't just decide as somebody in the pews or even as a priest or as a bishop that so-and-so by virtue of whatever information you have or surmise that, that they have excommunicated themselves. It has to be formally declared. That's one thing. The other thing is, and this is the second part, and others obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. So that's, that's what gets cited when politicians are, you know, and certain people say, well, you should withhold communion from somebody. There are so many problems with this canon because, first of all, canon law is not common law like we have in the United States or Great Britain. It's not lowest common denominator. It's always aspirational. And so there's no clear, it's not precedential. It's not like, well, you know, David Dalt was an apostate who went around murdering people and attempted to kill the Pope. Those are all things that would, would bring it, you know, into the category of obstinance and grave sin and this kind of stuff. It's, it's not so clear cut. What, what happens, and, and therefore, because that person was, you know, refused communion or something like this, then we can apply it to others. It, it doesn't work that way. Instead, there's, there's mode for prudential interpretation. It's always the case. And, and there's really a high bar that's set. People use this and they throw Canon 915 around really lightly. For example, what does it mean to talk about manifest grave sin? And who gets to decide that? It's not clear in Canon 915. But there are canon lawyers, professors of canon law, who comment on these things. And one of the key things that uh, a number of them point out is 
that we cannot know. You as a minister of communion, you're a Eucharistic minister, or you're the presiding priest or bishop, you're distributing communion at the celebration of the Eucharist, you do not know the state of another person's conscience. So they could have confessed, they could have made reconciliation in the interim, and even though they had, even the day before, been in stubborn and manifest grave sin, they may be coming in a state of grace, that's, to receive. That is exactly correct. And and I here would quote, you know, Professor John Hules, who's a, a Servite priest and, and one of the foremost experts on, on canon law, living experts. He says in, in the kind of the standard commentary on Canon 915, he says, the state of one's conscience is a matter of the internal forum, which means exactly what you said. Internal forum is under the seal of confession. So I don't know what your state of grace is, right? Or what the state of your conscience is. Even if I did, I couldn't even acknowledge that I would know. Let's say you went to the Sacrament of Reconciliation of Penance before we got on the air here. I cannot acknowledge that by virtue of the internal forum. So you see the conundrum so that you do not know for certain ever what another person's uh, state of conscience is. And he says, yet this canon seems to address ministers in the external forum, which means you do something publicly to refuse somebody communion actually causes grave scandal because you are saying you're calling somebody out essentially on a sin. So your hands are tied. It's kind of a paradox. If you're a priest, it's presumed perhaps that you know something about the state of this person's conscience from the internal form, which you cannot acknowledge. Anybody who's seen the movie um, Calvary, the movie Calvary. I haven't seen it. You should see it. Okay. It's very good. It's very hard. Yes. But it's good. Okay. Spoiler alert. I'm not going to say how it ends, but the premise is this. Uh, A guy goes in at the very beginning of the movie to confession to the town priest confesses that he's going to kill the priest a week later. Now, because that's in the internal form, the priest cannot do anything to draw attention to that or acknowledge that that's the case. He can't alter his his behavior or his habits, but he knows that he's been threatened. The sin is, you know, this guy harboring this murder stuff, and he confesses this and so forth and so on. So the whole movie is about how he deals with this and deals with, yeah, it's very, very good. <laughs> For those who can't see, David's eyes went really wide. All of this is to say is exactly what you said, which is, you know, you know, the Hitler argument is always the worst argument or, you know, they throw it in as the conversation stopper. And people have asked me before, so you mean to tell me that if Adolf Hitler was walking up your communion aisle, you wouldn't refuse some communion? And I'd say, that's exactly what I mean to tell you. I don't know if 10 seconds before mass began that Adolf, I don't know what he's doing still alive in 2017, didn't go to the sacrament of penance. I don't know what the state of his conscience is. Neither do you. It's not an, it's not a tacit approval of, of what other people have done and so forth. It's just, uh, there's, there's a real call for humility and a recognition that the Eucharist is not a weapon. Isn't there also a sense in which the Eucharist is not only not a weapon, but it's a medicine? I mean, yes. to the, to this, to the extent that a person who is in grave and manifest sin might come and, and partake. I mean, yes, holy things are for the holy, but also the sick need medicine. Yeah, I can tell you have a PhD in theology, good sir. <laughs> I just hang out with good priests. <laughs> well, I'm reminded of a quote of Jesus Christ in the gospel, only God the Father is good. Do not call <laughs> I don't know if you hang out with any good priests <laughs> on that on that scale. Fair enough. But uh, yeah, no, that's exactly right. So it goes all the way back to St. Augustine. You can go to Peter Lombard, Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure. These are all doctors of the church. These are all great theologians. They say exactly that. The Eucharist is understood first and foremost as, as, as not just a medicine. It is a medicine, uh, what, what Thomas would call uh, an effective 
exercise of the gratia sanins, right? The healing grace of God, but it's also um, food for the journey. You know, we say that the, the communion that's given to the dying is called viaticum, right? Food for the way. And in uh, and, and the way that the, the medievals and the patristics dealt with this, which, gosh, I wish, you know, for all these people who are like, oh, I want the Latin mass and people shouldn't go to, you know, go to communion if they vote a certain way. It's like, go back and read Augustine or go back and read Thomas Aquinas who say there are two ways to receive the Eucharist. One is on the kind of sacramental level. Uh, I think it's Augustine who uses this term. And by that, the sacramental means that you receive the grace of, of the sacramental presence of Christ in the Eucharist, like everybody does. He says, but if, if you're in a, a greater state of grace in that reception, you can also receive it kind of on a spiritual level. There's nothing in there about precluding people from receiving that. And, and that's really where the primacy of conscience comes in. There are people who shouldn't receive Holy Communion, but that's something that they need to discern themselves. And that's where we have a, as a community have a, a role to play in forming consciences. But I think it's been misunderstood, as you said. It's, it's been seen as a reward for the holy or the good. It's been seen as a weapon to be used to say who's a good Catholic or a bad Catholic. And, and you know, it, it's, we got to get away from that. You're going to just come down and tell me that I should just be praying for Nancy Pelosi and Paul Ryan, aren't you? I, I think we should pray for each other all the time. I, I, I'm going to say that they should not only they should pray for each other, but, but I think Catholic Christians particularly— and, and those of us who are public ministers, such as myself, I'm a Catholic priest, so I have a certain, I participate in the authority of my local bishop. Uh, I have a teaching responsibility. I think it's our responsibility to work on forming the consciences of others, which includes praying for people, but also acknowledging that none of us is A, without sin, and none of us are, are perfect Catholics in, in, in following everything to a T, which is exactly why we begin every Eucharistic celebration with a penitential act where we have absolution for, you know, the everyday sins that we commit, you know. It's not an excuse that doesn't justify us doing wrong things, but it acknowledges our human frailty and finitude. We are not perfect. God knows that. We need to do better at, at recognizing that and challenging one another to be better. So we should challenge, uh, you know, Leader Pelosi. We should challenge Speaker Ryan to be better Christians, to be better Catholics, to point out when there are contradictions but you, we can't be, as, as the U.S. bishops have made clear in recent years, they've reiterated this truth that we're not one-issue people. And so it doesn't matter which issue you pick, it's not sufficient to justify your political perspectives. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to take up the question of Harvey, Katrina, and care for creation. You're listening to The Francis Effect, and I'm here with Dan Haran, and I'm David Dalton. We'll be back in just a moment. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you. So we're back with The Francis Effect. This is Dan Haran here with David Dalt. In addition to talking about uh, racism and uh, its persistence in the United States and the Confederate controversies and what's up with Paul Ryan, in recent weeks, uh, we've witnessed a natural disaster of immense proportion in the hurricane and then tropical storm Harvey that has absolutely decimated Houston and the eastern part of Louisiana. And in, in coming weeks, we'll see it as well persist and uh, on, a, on a level that's not been seen before. 
So we're here to kind of now reflect on that. What, what relationship does these signs of our times, to quote Gaudium et Spes, uh, how can we interpret these signs in the light of the gospel? How does this tie in to uh, care for creation? And here we happen to be recording this on September 1st, and this happens to be the ecumenical uh, and world day of prayer for creation. So a fitting time to reflect on this and to, and to think about as people of faith, how do we engage with what we've seen unfold? Well, and on that note, I mean, one of the things that we talk about when we think about creation, there's this tension, right? So one on the one side, we're told that we have dominion. And on the other side, we're told that we have stewardship. Those are two concepts that are biblical, that we get them in Scripture. One indicates, or one is taken to kind of mean that we have mastery and control and we get to use this stuff any way that we wish. The other one is that we have to take care of it and almost shepherd it so that it's there for the next generation. And I, I've i got friends who are Christians who are across the spectrum, and I hear language coming from across that spectrum of the way in which we should be thinking about the world and the earth and our influence in the world and the earth. And the thing that comes to mind right now is is the folks that I have seen they're not friends of mine, but they, they modify their trucks so that when they push the accelerator, it burns more gasoline and burns more hydrocarbons, and it puts out this huge plume of smoke out the back, and the, the term they use for that is rolling coal. Is that a real thing? That is a real thing. Does it uh, have any kind of mechanical value? It doesn't have any mechanical value. It has kind of aesthetic and... Um, like rum rum kind ja- of value? Kind of, no. It, it, it literally just makes this huge plume of smoke. And oh. if you ever listen to the uh, the evangelical radio host who does a lot of stuff on finances, Dave Ramsey, he he's one of these roll coal guys. And he's modified, I believe he's modified his truck to do this, but I've, I've when I used to live down in Georgia, I would see this stuff all the time back in the 90s. I believe it. Well, that's not cool. No. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Dan Haran. I do not approve that message. I actually don't know what this expression means. People use it all the time. You know, this is... So here's the expression. What we're talking about right now is in my, quote, wheelhouse. Okay. I'm not sure what a wheelhouse is. Fair enough. Or what one stores or does in a wheelhouse. <laughs> but regardless... <laughs> regardless. We're there. Well, yeah, we're there, and this <laughs> is there as well. Yeah. And that's theology of creation. In fact, I wrote my dissertation on this. Okay. Um, so here's a nerd alert for our listeners. You're absolutely right. There, There are these kind of two overwhelming major models of creation, oftentimes called the dominion model on the one hand and then the stewardship model on the other. Um, and they are versions of interpreting Genesis 1 and 2 as kind of overarching themes. So dominion comes from Genesis 1, 26 to 28, this idea of we've been given a mandate to subdue and dominate creation, as it were. Newsflash uh, to all of us, uh, just a reminder that with Laudato Si, an encyclical teaching, Pope Francis has put the kibosh, and that's that's a Hebrew pun because kibosh means subdue in Hebrew, <laughs> but put, has put the kibosh on uh, that interpretation. And I think it's paragraph 64. I don't have it right before me. It's like in the 60s where he, he says, you know, there's been this tradition in Judaism and Christianity of going and pointing to Genesis 1, 26, 28, and interpreting dominion and subdue in that one line, that one verse, is giving us kind of like lordship over creation. And he says, this is not what the Catholic Church teaches. So he puts an end to that. So dominion, uh, at least for our listeners who identify as being in communion with the Roman Catholic Church, to hold that view, you, at least on that subject, are outside of communion. But that leaves us with stewardship, which is kind of like the consensus model of how we should care for creation. And, And it is, like you said, you know, this idea of preserving creation. It's not ours. It belongs to God. That's where like 
ecology comes from this idea of a home in oikos uh, that how do we organize our house, God's house as it is, our common home as Pope Francis calls it. But then there's this other model of creation, and this is where I put on my Franciscan habit. For those who, uh, you know, are, are listening but can't see me, I'm putting it on right now. That's a lie. I'm sorry. I'm not wearing my habit. <laughs> but, um, but that's the kinship or community of creation model, which, which is rooted in the same account of creation that stewardship really is in Genesis 2, that we're created ha from the earth. We're earthlings. We're made of, you know, dust, or as Carl Sagan said, you know, we're made of star stuff, you know. And I think that that's the direction I like to see us move in as Christians to talk not just about how do we preserve or steward or garden the creation around us for the sake of other humans, because that's so anthropocentric. It's like it's all about us, you know. Instead, how can we kind of change our lens, our, our shift our paradigm to recognize that we are part of the rest of creation and that we're interdependent. You know, I'm looking outside of this beautiful studio we're in and I see these trees that are right outside the window. These trees are our sisters and brothers. And I know to some listeners, they're like, oh, here you go, a Franciscan hippie. Oh my God, please just and click. Just stay with me, please. I promise it's going to get good. In, in the truest sense, in the spirit of St. Francis, these trees are taking our nasty carbon dioxide with every breath, with every line I'm speaking into this microphone, and through the process of photosynthesizing, you know, takes energy from the sun and nutrients from the earth and then releases fresh oxygen so that we can live and breathe. And by the way, we can eat their fruit and we can eat the plants and they nourish us. These trees in the plant life and the animal life and the algae and the bacteria life in us and around us and everything, it's already caring for us. And so the kinship model would say, we need to care for creation, not because we need to like store up our supplies for future generations and our great grandkids. We need to care for creation because we're part of a family and to not do so, as Pope Francis says at some points in Laudato Si, is you know, tantamount to you know, ecological domestic abuse. We talked earlier about the concept of dignity, and I'm wondering, so from a Franciscan perspective, as we look out at this tree, is there a sense in which that tree has an inherent dignity in the way that a human being would have dignity, or would it have a different kind of dignity, Like, or would it, I'm not even sure the question that I'm asking. Yeah, you're asking an awesome question. You know, this is, this is a contentious subject both for environmental ethicists, of which I am not, I'm, I'm a systematician or a systematic theologian, a dogmatic theologian, but obviously some of the work and the interests that I have relate to ethics, you know, it should affect us. But it's also a question, I think, in just the common worldview, which is like, <laughs> I'll bring in this voice again, you know, do you mean to tell me that trees are the same as humans? Like, is that what you're saying, Haran? No, I'm not saying that. But to your point about dignity, I would say that the kinship or community model of creation, which Pope Francis gestures to, he doesn't name it explicitly, um, but he, he has kind of one foot in that camp and one foot in the stewardship camp. He says, essentially, that other creatures, including plants and non-sentient objects and creatures and, and animals and everything, they have intrinsic value or dignity independent of our evaluation. In other words, there's instrumental value. You know, this tree is worthwhile to me because it makes oxygen, and that's why I should protect it. Or this tree is valuable to me because I can make a house out of it. That's instrumental value, and that's predicated on what I find useful Yet the Franciscan perspective, as St. Francis, in his own kind of spirituality, his own theological worldview makes clear, it has value in and of itself. And, and it doesn't come just from St. Francis. It comes from, for instance, the Hebrew Bible and the book of Job, where God points to all these like creatures in, in the universe and says, 
You have nothing to do with these things. You don't know. You think you know, Job. You think you know me. You know nothing. And then God proceeds to, to like drop the mic in these two, you know, rants to Job about all the magnificence of creation, which I think the way I like to read those two discourses, divine discourses, is sort of like, you know, kind of a recounting of the 14 billion years before we showed up in the universe as a species. Like God has a direct relationship to the rest of this creation. So therefore, God loved it into existence, the Franciscan tradition would say, and because it exists, it has inherent dignity and value. Is it the same as human life and value and dignity? No, we're not Janes. You know, we're not saying everything. There's a flattening of value. Not, absolutely not. But there is value independent of us. And so, you know, what, what role does that play in our outlook? So when we think about then what we're seeing, to bring it back to, to Harvey, yeah. A storm that, you know, we've we've been hearing for the last couple of, of cycles about 100-year storms, and it seems like we've had a lot of 100-year storms, and now suddenly Harvey has popped up and say, say oh, Harvey's a 500-year storm. And at the same time that Harvey is happening around the world in other areas, we're getting similar kinds of huge deluges, floods, and, and just massive amounts of rainfall and infrastructure overload. So we're entering an age where these kind of superlatives are no longer adequate. And I'm wondering in terms of, of dominion and stewardship, you know, our conservative brothers and sisters would be uh, hesitant to say that human beings have a role in this at all. Yeah. And they'll simply say, well, the climate's always been changing and maybe we just live at a really, really bad time. But it seems to me logically, that there is a connection between the actions that we've taken over the last century, century and a quarter, with regard to what we've dumped into the atmosphere. You mentioned carbon dioxide. We've dumped a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. We've dumped a lot of other chemicals into the atmosphere. We have, we have exploded hundreds of nuclear warheads in the atmosphere that had millions of degrees ignition points. We've added a lot of extra temperature and a lot of extra insulation over the last century. It seems to me as if we have to at some point take ownership of this. How as Catholics are we called or are we called as Catholics to take ownership for kind of the trouble that we've caused? Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. Everything you said said is right. Um, the, the one caveat I would add, you know, if, if I may, is that this idea of conservative or liberal, progressive or traditional, these kinds of things – it's so irrelevant when it comes to global climate change. Um, it, I think what, we, what we're dealing with, if I'm picking up what you're putting down, is that there are those who deny the reality of human-influenced global climate change, and then there are the people who can think, like in the people who understand. So people say, well, you know, this, not all scientists agree. That's true. But, but according to the latest reports, 97% of climatologists and, and climate scientists around the world are unequivocally on the same page about this. The other 3%, I think, first of all, that's a pretty decent margin of error for them just simply to be wrong. And you can take 3% from the 97, all right, 94% of the rest of the scientists are right. The other thing is there are certain scientists who are paid by lobbies and by coal companies and oil companies and so on and so forth. Anyways, we don't have to rehearse all of that here. We know that. But it's like that on the on the ads where they used to say nine out of ten dentists recommend this. Like, who's that other dentist? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's exactly. He recommends sand. <laughs> Brush your teeth with sand. I don't think this Colgate's abrasive enough. Well, it, and so from a Catholic perspective, because that's what you really raised, I, 
I think it's, it's unequivocal for us. You know, the Holy Father has made it clear in an encyclical. So for those who might identify themselves as diehard Catholics, whatever that might mean, or like loyal Catholics or conservative or however, whatever label they want to apply to themselves, these secular labels, as it were, I would remind them that the level of teaching authority that an encyclical letter has is, 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 goes across the board. So those who are adamant about humana vitae and the, the prohibition against artificial birth control, what Pope Francis says in Laudato Si is of the same level. So if you dissent from that, you're no different from those who dissent from the teachings in Humana Vitae. I think that's really important for people to realize that there are levels of teaching authority, and we're talking about papal encyclicals on the same level, right? So Pope Francis is is both reiterating and developing the teaching uh, both on the on the Catholic social side of Catholic teaching, so the ethical side, but also, as I mentioned earlier, the, the dogmatic side, so the scriptural interpretation of Genesis 1, for instance. So anyways, on, on this day, on September 1st, 2017, there's a joint message that came out from Pope Francis and ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew of the Orthodox Church. And the last lines that they say address your point, David, which is, in a sense, a summary, a reiteration of Laudato Si, as well as all the great work that Patriarch Bartholomew has done in, in recent decades on this subject. And they say, you know, to answer your question, you know, is there a Catholic relationship to the decisions we make, to our politics? They say, we urgently appeal to those in positions of social and economic, as well as, emphasis here, political and cultural responsibility to hear the cry of the earth and to attend to the needs of the marginalized, but above all, to respond to the plea of millions and support the consensus of the world for the healing of our wounded creation. Striking, isn't it? Consensus of the world. So, you know, it's a certain percentage of the U.S. population has bought into the delusion that we have nothing to do or can do nothing about global climate change or that it's a hoax by the Chinese, which is one of the, the most ridiculous things I've heard. What the Holy Father is saying here, along with you know, one of the leaders of the Orthodox Christian community um, signing this together, is that this is not, this is the consensus of the world. We're talking about 7 billion people, you know, a few thousand or tens or hundreds of thousands of, of Americans who are in denial, who are playing the ostrich with their head in the sand, I think it's our responsibility to challenge one another, to a wake-up call, to read Laudato Si, to incorporate that in our preaching for those of us who are, who are ministers of the word, but to talk about it as an element of our faith, you know, and, and the way we vote, the way we live, the way we make purchases and so forth. Well, that may be a good place for us to draw this to a close. Dan, as always, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for coming by. David, it's my pleasure. Looking and forward to more. Yeah, we'll, we'll do this again in a, in a couple of weeks. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. We have a production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they are wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We should also say that we're expressing our own opinions, that we're not speaking on behalf of any of the institutions with which we might be associated. 
We're using the name Francis Effect partly with the blessing of Salt and Light Media. They also don't have any relationship to the content of this program, but they're also great folks, and you should check out the good work that they do. We're supported by listeners. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis and an F and an X and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or give us a comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing us at francisfxpod at gmail.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Ha, ha, ha.